millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to History Hack. Uh, because we had so much fun last time doing the origins of the British Army in the 16 and 1700s, I've reassembled our team of 1700s experts. But fair warning, uh, we just spent the last five minutes before pressing record and they were all putting their excuses in about why they know nothing about the subject that they're experts in. So this could end up being really interesting tonight. I am joined by Andrew, I don't just do down the pub doorman, uh, who is doing his uh, PhD in the, on the British Army in the 1700s. How are you doing, Andy? I'm good. I'm good. Happy to be here again with uh, the correct century crew and all this 19th century nonsense. Got the correct century, but you still get your excuses, correct? Yes, yes. Well, look, look I, I focus very much on Ireland and the European theatre. This is where regiments are sent to die, in my opinion. So. Excellent. Just, you know, just the army dying, nothing to do with the rest of the army. Mm. Exactly, exactly. Excuses. Uh, we're joined back by uh, Robbie McNiven, who you might remember from us doing the uh, American Revolution and Light Infantry episode as well, uh, which is your main ball game and published many Ospreys on that, as well as some, uh, some nerd books that Dorman and I really like. How are you doing, Robbie? I'm very good, thank you. Uh, yeah, for me, this is kind of like the prelude to the stuff I study. So, like, I'll do my best. But, like, when I was getting into it, I was quite interested in it. That was years ago. Um, I actually have the Dan Snow book about the Quebec campaign sitting on my shelf, unread. So, I guess at some point I should probably read that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it'll be fine. More excuses. Um, so, excellent. It's going really well. And then we've got, from Land of History, uh, Josh Proban, who the other day was describing himself as a medievalist. But I know that his uh, knowledge is pretty much omnipotent. So I'm um, hoping you're going to come in here and rescue us all, Josh. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and I'm now feeling a great deal of pressure because <laughs> I do I, I do enjoy this period of his military history, and uh, it sounds like I've read more about it than everybody else. <laughs> Yeah, we've only got an author and a potential doctor on this uh, on this warfare era, and uh, they're putting it all on you. So I hope the pressure is feeling uh, pretty high right now, actually, because we're going to need you to come and save the day, like uh, an Irish regiment over the horizon. I think. Hooray! <laughs> well, you should be. I think they're more Highland. Highland. This is this is more like a Highlanders show than Irish regiments, but. Uh, I'm sure that I'm sure that Andy will have some interesting stuff <laughs> to enlighten oh, us I all do. with. 
<laughs> oh, but I do. I was looking through the order of battle and I thought, I recognise that. I recognise yeah. that. So. <laughs> oh, we do like an order of battle with numbered regiments and a little bit of county linkage. Um, this is going to be good, um, mostly for how the attitude that we're taking to it. But I genuinely had a lot of fun last time when we were skipping back to the 16 and 1700s, well out of my comfort zone where I pretty much cut off about 1807 uh, and do 1815. So I, I limit myself on purpose. Uh, but this was really interesting. I, I've got a really nice connection to Wolf. Uh, his childhood home, uh, Quebec House, is just kind of down the road from me in Westroom in Kent. Uh, and I'm going to talk to, about that at the end, but it's, it's a stunning little property and his statue is there. There's a little museum to him and uh, some nice parts. But we're going back to the French and Indian Wars, as they're known. Uh, so does anyone want to jump in and summarise where we are, why they started and what's going on in the world? Dorman, go for it. Yeah, OK. Um, I, I look forward to my synopsis being corrected by Josh in a sec. Uh, well, I mean, it's kind of in the name, isn't it? French-Indian War. We know what we're fighting. Um, it, it's, as, a, as a historian, it's, it's a bit of a difficult war to nail down because a lot of people consider it part of the Seven Years' War, which is kind of fought parallel to it in Europe. Others view it as a separate entity altogether. I'd kind of fall into the former category. I do think they are too tied together for you to you know bisect them but however um so it kicks off around 70 or 1754 55 and lasts until 1763 um the situation in north america coming into the 1750s would be described as tense i think would be the best way to put it and the uh, native population are kind of stuck in the middle between well i guess three powers if you include spain but Fr france and england are our main protagonists here um and they're kind of skirting between whoever's offering a better trade deal and uh, grant of land and this sort of thing. The origins of this particular conflict uh, come about in 1749. Now, only a year earlier, the War of the Austrian Secession, where, to be honest, the British army had not performed particularly well and had lost more battles than it had won. Uh, that had just concluded at the Treaty of Aix-Chapelle. So a year later, in response to British trading inroads in the upper Ohio Valley, uh, the Governor General, which is a fantastic title of uh, New France, less fantastic, um, he ordered <laughs> uh, trading houses to lower British flags and sort of, you know, accept the fact they are in French territory and stop being so aggressively jingoistic. Um, and that kind of set the tone. And over the next couple of years, there were more and more sort of pushback to uh, British incursions in this area, culminating in a large number of British traders just being attacked and well massacred, really, by French and Native American allies who were uh, in cahoots with the French. Uh, the French begin to fortify the area and build a series of uh, fortifications along tree uh, trading areas, rivers, that sort of thing. And the British colonies, who are not independent at this stage, uh, but op they have a pseudo, I guess, independence to them. They begin mobilizing their own militia, including a young George Washington. And this He's is when the conflict... Side, right, uh, your side, yes. Uh, <laughs> says he in his Irish accent. Um, you're on our side right there. <laughs> against our will. Um, and the conflict, by the way, it begins to escalate. Uh, they ask for the crown for reinforcements, which are granted, and that's kind of where the whole thing turns into, I guess, the French Indian War proper, as opposed to some colonial skirmishing. And you have British regulars arriving on the scene, and that's when 
And it reaches this point of, I guess you could classify it as an actual war. And that's end of 1754 coming into 1755. How like, do I do, Josh? <laughs> uh, that's pretty. That's a pretty fair summary as, as far as I can tell. I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, it hits all the high points. You have European tensions flooding into North America, which is just what's been happening through every European war that's ever happened because you had King George's war before this. You had... Uh, Queen Anne's war before that, all relative to the big wars like the Spanish succession and, and things like that. So in a way, this was very, this, this, this war was um, special because it, an American, an American border issue sparked a war that, went, that drew in Europe rather than the other way around. But this isn't a sideshow, this isn't a proxy war, this is quite a major conflict. Um, if you're talking to me, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, this is a major conflict, yes. And the British take it very seriously, um, increasingly seriously as the years go on. And, and the subject we're talking about today, which is the Battle of Quebec, 1759, um, you're seeing the, the fruition of the British strategy in North America, which is they've realized they can win the war with France if they take if they take Canada, and they've now put an immense amount of money and troops into America as opposed to France, which has drawn back uh, its logistical um, aid to its colonies and are concentrating on Europe. Sounds like an error. So. <laughs> What really happens here is we're starting to build up forces as they're starting to roll back. And I believe I'm right in saying at some point in this time, we're sending in a young James Wolfe with an E. Um, Robbie, do you want to jump in and tell us a bit more about this man? Wolfe is quite enigmatic. He's quite optimistic. He's quite driven. But, you know, we were saying before that maybe he's a bit too driven. And uh, perhaps he's got some bad traits too, but he's incredibly young as a general or as a colonel. Go on. Yeah, uh, absolutely. He's a career soldier, first and foremost. Uh, you know, he comes from a military family. Um, his father is General uh, Edward Wolfe. Uh, he is a junior officer at the age of 13 in the Marines, as you do, um, where he's lucky to avoid being carted off to... Uh, I can never pronounce it. What is now Colombia uh, during the war of um, Jenkins' Azir against Spain, um, an expedition that meets complete disaster, um, which he's recalled from because he's a bit too ill, which is uh, a reoccurring theme throughout his life. He was quite a sickly man um, and developed a bit of a sort of a martyr personality in a sense. Uh, he viewed his duty as something that came before his personal health, I think, but he was always trying to climb the ladder in a sense. Um, as you pointed out, he was quite young, um, even considering it's wartime where promotions are more common to deal with casualties and things like that. You know, he achieved high rank at an early age, mainly just through the standard 18th century British um, method of referrals, who you know, that sort of thing, uh, but also being in the right place at the right time. So he was very militarily active in uh, First of all, the Austrian succession, uh, where he, again, was rather lucky in so much as he missed the Battle of Fontenoy because he was in garrison at Ghent. And then his regiment was ordered to reinforce the British army after Fontenoy because it had suffered losses. So they marched out of Ghent and just afterwards, Ghent falls to a French attack. 
So he's managed to twice dodge being captured by the French um, during the War of Austrian Succession. Uh, he's at Culloden, so uh, the last Jacobite rising. He's uh, an aide to probably the most infamous uh, British general um, during that conflict, uh, General Hawley. Uh, there's a sort of a strange apocryphal story involving him at Culloden where supposedly uh, he was with the Duke of Cumberland at the end of the battle and they come across a wounded Jacobite Highlander and Cumberland orders him to dispatch the rebel um, and he refuses and so Cumberland gets someone else to do it. Uh, which is a bit strange for two reasons. Um, first off, he doesn't really seem to have had uh, any particular affinity for the Scots. Um, he spent time garrisoned in Scotland after the Jacobite Rising uh, between that and the Seven Years' War period, uh, where he writes quite a lot of letters saying how much basically he hates Scotland, which, you know, as a Scot, <laughs> it's fine. You know, it's cool. Um, Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> eh, well, nah, no, but hey, whatever. Um, it's or that, foreigners. <laughs> the um, so yeah, the, the sort of the strange story about him refusing to kill a Highlander uh, is used as an explanation for why supposedly his Highlanders thought highly of him <laughs> uh, when they were serving under him um, during the Quebec campaign. Um, which I don't know if it's entirely true, but I think that story appears quite long after the fact. Uh, but it, it kind of sums up Wolf as someone who is uh, aware of his image. Uh, in the 18th century establishment, um, and he handles, handles his image quite carefully, I think, uh, throughout that early period, um, securing these promotions that kind of build up to his first major campaign in North America during the Seven Years' War, which is um, the attack on Louisbourg, uh, which is sort of one of the main French bastions uh, in North America, in Nova Scotia. Uh, so he is active in that campaign. He's fairly instrumental in terms of winning it, um, capturing the town. And uh, that then results in him being given the Quebec expedition, uh, where he famously dies at the moment of his triumph, does a early Nelson, and uh, thereby sort of semi-ensures his uh, immortality. He, yeah, he's famously immortalized uh, after his death uh, in 1717 by Benjamin West, who uh, paints a... I mean, we might come on to talk about it later, but a very famous, probably the most famous 18th century, well, most widely distributed 18th century uh, piece of artwork, uh, which shows him at the moment of his uh, martyrdom, as he would have certainly imagined it, um, surrounded by all the figures that epitomize uh, the British control of North America, essentially. Uh, it's, a, it's a stunning painting. Um, it, it really is. I think it's, it's one of the ones up there. It's got his Indian allies. Um, I'm pretty sure one of the men depicted is meant to be uh, Bromhead's from Rock's Drift's ancestor that gets mentioned in Zulu. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just an amazing uh, painting. And actually, if anyone doesn't know much about Quebec, they've probably seen that painting somewhere, or at least the scaling of the cliffs. You're okay. right. Yeah. I want to open the floor up about a uh, discussion quickly about Wolf, because I think Dorman used some choice language before we got the record. Um, and I just wonder what people epitomise. To me, you know, I just know him as a martyr from the Plains of Abraham, the Battle of Quebec, uh, being a young, dynamic general who maybe could have saved America if he hadn't died, you know. But is that not correct? I'm quite happy for, for you as the well, experts to... What do you think of Wolf? Well, I think... It depends on whose side you're on in the debate as to how an officer should relate to his subordinates. 
because during the Quebec campaign, he doesn't treat them very well at all. <laughs> He's incredibly rude. Now, in fairness, they view him as an upstart, you know, and that he doesn't deserve to be there and that they're going to try and undermine him. So I can understand the need to sort of stamp that out. But at the same token, it, it kind of went throughout his entire career. So I don't think it was fully just him trying to solidify his position as the commander of this expedition. So I think uh, for me anyway, from what I've read, he doesn't come across in a fantastic light. And he didn't like the men that he was commanding either. It's, it's worth putting that out there. Um, there's, a, there's a quote here. Um, he remarked uh, that his men were disobedient and dastardly and that they strolled about in dirty red clothes from one gin ship to another, dirty, drunken, insolent rascals. Just sounds like British soldiers. That's brilliant. So, I mean, maybe not the nicest character, but as Robbie said, an opportunist and a career soldier. Is he, is he known for flogging? Is he like a, a Black Bob Crawford? Are we talking harsh discipline or just doesn't really like them? Um... I'm not actually entirely certain in terms of just flogging. Uh, he certainly is an interesting figure in so much as he does come off as a bit of a disciplinarian, but also he's happy to indulge in all sorts of um, sort of uh, modernizing styles of conflict. He, uh, you know, was totally up for the idea of light infantry in North America. Um, he studied <laughs> warfare quite deeply uh, in 1755. He basically came up with a technique to stop a French column. Um, using, you know, a particular weight of firepower. Uh, so he is a, a thinker, you know, he's a military um, theorist. So he has that going for him. But in terms of discipline, yeah, he's, I don't know. <laughs> he's, Go on, tell, yeah, tell he's, us more about stopping a, bit of stopping a French column through weight of firepower, because this sounds a little bit uh, Peninsula War, Sharp-esque. Uh-huh, you've got to explain platoon fire. I, <laughs> I, 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 I know it well. Go I mean, on. Actually, I mean, actually, it's not just platoon fire because what Rory's, sorry, Robbie's talking about here is, uh, sorry, I got you confused with Rory Muir. I can do cool. <laughs> Robbie is talking about here is not just his, his, um, his improvement on platoon fire, which I'm totally going to leave to you, by the way. <laughs> But um, the, he, his instructions for stopping a column was that in a line, and you'll recognize this, Marcus, from, from the Peninsula War, actually, was that the flanks must fire obliquely into the mass of the column. Sounds sensible. Go on, Robbie. What's so complicated about this platoon fire? What what are they improving from? So we no longer, you know, we, we always try to break this down for everybody. A battalion is made up of 10 companies of roughly 100 men. Uh, each company can normally be split down into two platoons. So what makes this different and complicated? I mean, the issue, reason we're all chuckling, because I mean, it sounds simple enough when you explain it like that, but uh, there were actually different methods of delivering fired by platoons. We kind of think of them often as a ripple effect from one end of the line to the other, or sometimes even from both ends going inwards. But actually, you could have a system whereby every sort of odd or even group of platoons would fire at once, or they'd be sort of split into grand divisions where there were a number of platoons, but not necessarily along company lines. Yeah, it's weird. Um, in yeah, so much that sounds more complicated. <laughs> yeah, it's it varies on different sort of nationalities. The Dutch had different systems from the British, for example. Um, and then it varies throughout the century. So uh, 
I think the most famous British method of platoon firing is the one instituted by Humphrey Bland, who is an army officer and a, a military theorist. Uh, but it, it, it morphs and it kind of also depends on the commander in the field, um, what system they're using. So uh, yeah, um, in terms of Wolf and his influence on platoon firing, I'm not entirely sure because we're talking about Quebec and they didn't use platoon firing in Quebec, not particularly, I don't think. Um, we'll talk about it more later, but it kind of comes down to a couple of extremely heavy battalion volleys, um, I think. I, so. yeah. as, as far as I've ever heard it explained, I mean, it is, a, it, is a, it, is a, it is an incredibly simplified version of the complex platoon firing where you have the battalion split up into much more manageable groups to fire rather than up to four to three platoons designated as you go into battle. And then you say, first platoons fire, and then second platoons fire, and then third platoons fire, and you get this never-ending rolling fire thing. But Wolf's would just basically just completely simplify that. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's true, uh, Rafi, nobody actually knows what sort of volley fire was used at Quebec. <laughs> <laughs> I think the thing that's interesting about Wolf is he took it on his own initiative to bring in this new system with his own regiment when he was a lieutenant colonel. So he was in charge of the 20th foot at one stage, and he brings oh. in this simplified, arguably more effective version of it. So, I mean, the, the realities of the firing is just military button counting. But yeah. the important thing, I suppose, for our discussion is that he was an innovator and that mm -hmm. carried on throughout. And he was willing to try things, if nothing else. Yeah. yeah. He was also yeah. quite flex. It was also quite flex flexible, though, as well, because um, uh, I, I, re I read yesterday that when he took command in Canada, he... Um, some some battalions officers were saying we don't have time to learn your stupid drills okay um and he said well actually you know, no you don't need to worry about that do what you like so long as everybody's willing to fight i'm fine with that <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay so yeah. he put something really complicated in place and he goes oh don't worry it'll work out in the end um yeah <laughs> that's my management when, uh, i like it when he was in um based in Scotland and garrison duty before the Seven Years' War, he actually spent quite a lot of time in Paris, which is understandable if you have to spend lots of time in Scotland. Uh, but yeah, he would, um, he would trip across to Paris where he learned French and mastered fencing. And he also studied the actual French military a fair bit. Uh, he was actually going to go to a military review uh, with Louis the 15th, well, Louis right. Um, just before the Seven Years' War sort of broke out, he was recalled back to Scotland because things were simmering. Um, so he never actually got to view the French military up close in that sense. But he was he was definitely a theorist um, and was determined to sort of put the theories he'd come up with into practice, uh, which you see a lot of during the Quebec campaign. Awesome. Okay. So we've kind of got a bit more of a handle for him. Everyone's saying, so he's sounding like quite bookish. He's sounding like he's being heavy on theory. He's driven by his own career and he's going to make things work his way, I think he's right in saying, which might not always be popular. And he's saying some pretty horrible things about his own men, uh, which isn't 100% house of character for the era, but isn't certainly endearing him as well. Um, so we've got the French and Indian War starting. But uh, Josh, just wonder if you could give us a quick summary of this particular campaign about the battle for Quebec for us. Well, uh, be, be happy to try, Marcus, be happy to try. Um, so Wolf's attack on Quebec is part of a three-pronged thrust on Canada that the French have been able to repeatedly disarm 
since 1755. Um, this, the, this is the first time it works for the British. Two other forces are going to attack at Niagara and Ticonderoga, while Wolfe comes down the St. Lawrence to hit Quebec, which he hoped he would be able to take quickly. And by acting aggressively, taking the initiative, establishing himself in a powerful position from where he could attack the city, um, which sits on a kind of an awkward place for an attacker to get at generally. You can't even really see it properly uh, from some places on the bank. Um, unlike in previous years, uh, the French were now directly defending French territory, not striking into the British colonies to take the war to the enemy. Uh, Louisburg had fallen in 1758, like, like Robbie said. This had pretty much advertised an attack on Quebec within the next year as it controlled the entrance to the St. Lawrence. So several regular battalions of French infantry had to be moved to Quebec and Montcalm, the Marquis de Montcalm, who is the French commander of the uh, French regular troops and de facto kind of field commander, had sensibly fortified stretch of river northeast of the city from uh, the town of, or the landing place of Beauport um, and the Montmorency River where Wolf had envisaged actually landing to march on Quebec. It has to be admitted or perhaps discussed here that Montcalm benefited from being able to take advantage of uh, the limited strategic options at Wolf's disposal as right up to the end Wolf's every move was to some degree predictable. Um, and utilizing what would later be called interior lines, the French were able to guard against mostly every threat um, until the last one. Uh, so French skill, the nature of the train, disease, meant the campaign did not achieve the brilliant aggressive results that Wolfe had hoped for. Uh, he got within four miles of Quebec, made his main camp on the Ile d'Orleans, which is right in the middle of the river in late July, sorry, June. Uh, from there, Wolfe tried to find a way to either get around Quebec by land or drive past it um, because it stands, like I say, on a promontory overlooking the St. Lawrence. And basically he's trying to get around the big cliffs and get onto the, get onto the dry land so he can get, get right in front of it and actually attack it. But all he manages to do is outflanking some of those French positions I mentioned earlier on the north bank along the Montmorency River in July and establishing himself on a point opposite the city on the south bank at a point called pointe de um, But he was unable to get around uh, the main French force in either direction. A direct attack on the French position below the city was actually repulsed on the 31st of July. Uh, that was a bit of an embarrassment um, because it, no, nothing worked. They, the Navy and the army just couldn't coordinate and a bunch of grenadiers just thought they could take on the entire French army and got the, you know, well, they got shown the door. Um, but so with this in mind, he, all he could do was, was shuffle troops between a semicircle of small beachheads, basically slowly trying to extend the perimeter around the city. Uh, and progress was painfully slow and they couldn't make anything happen. The Navy managed to get down the river in August, um, but that really didn't do anything except allow people to go raiding it for a little while. Um, and Wolf was now psychologically almost beaten. Uh, he was seriously ill. He was quarreling with his brigadiers, most of whom couldn't stand him. But miraculously, by September, his spirit, had, his old fighting spirit had returned, and he was planning an audacious last-ditch, all-or-nothing bit of audacity before the season ended, and the fleet would have to go home. 
his plan was to concentrate the bulk of his army opposite the steep cliffs known by the quaint name of Anse de Foulon, meaning Fuller Mill Cove, um, which is named for a defunct Fuller Mill. Um, and success here would basically just plant the whole army right on the doorstep of Quebec, but failure would be a disaster. For the said small army, all proportions, uh, let's say, to match the the, the scale of the mighty St. Lawrence. Okay. I mean, yeah, Dorman rightly pointed out that this is a campaign that needs a map. When we get this episode up, I'll try to put one in the comments. So I think that was really, I think that was really nicely summarised as we are talking about mighty rivers and Quebec is in a really unique geographical position. Uh, so thanks for that, Josh. That was, I think you did a really good job of summarising that for uh, for everyone listening at home, for trying to paint a picture with a map and lots of uh, manoeuvres in quite difficult terrain. Isn't podcasting fun? Isn't history podcasting <laughs> so fun? <laughs> I mean, there, there is some channels that uh, do this with uh, great uh, gusto and loads of maps and videos, but that's just not our style. We're all sat here on a Sunday night doing this in our dining room. Um, so, yeah, so we've, we've got to the outskirts of Quebec, and you've mentioned a few times there uh, General uh, Montcalm. So he mm-hmm. is... Adversary. Uh, I don't know if anybody wants to uh, quickly tell me who he is in like two minutes before we come to a pop culture reference that I know Dom. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I can, but yes. I just hogged. I just hogged the last three minutes or something like that. I did time this particular portion, so I can do it in under two. Go on, then. That sounds like a challenge. I might time you in, in response. <laughs> okay. I'll be Carol Vorderman. Shall I go? Go for it. Okay. So, Louis-Joseph Marquis de Montcalm, 47 years old, is handsome, brave, self-assured. He was also opinionated, prickly, and temperamentally unsuited to juggling the demands of internal politics and military affairs. As the commander of the Troupes de la Terre in Canada, he had proven himself as a general in the battles of Oswego, Fort William Henry, and Ticonderoga, despite previously never commanding more than a brigade. He had been just the brightest, youngest, and fittest of the men, uh, most of whom were older retired generals, considered for command in Canada after his predecessor was captured at Lake George earlier in the war. Um, He had been wounded in action uh, in the War of the Austrian Succession. He'd been shot in the head, and he was known as a cavalry commander. Um, But he was also a haughty man, proud of his skill as a regular soldier, technically commanded only the French regular troops and not the militias and colonial regulars. He bitterly resented the power wielded by the Marquis de Vaudreuil, uh, the governor general of Canada, who the Indians called Onontio, meaning that in a war pitted against much larger numbers and resources, the French command was generally divided. By the summer of 1759, Montcalm was increasingly becoming worn out by the demands of command and arguing constantly with civilian authorities. Ladies and gentlemen, that's how that's done. Two minutes almost exactly, and that's why Land of History has 10,500 followers on Twitter. Very, very well done, Josh. Thank you. I uh, can tell some good work and preparation went there. So now let's just talk about Lost Mohicans. Um, <laughs> Yay! Best movie ever. <laughs> as Dorman put in a Down the Pub episode, of best war movie ever, and I was probably the only person that voted for it because I think it's probably the best film ever made. 
Um, Robbie's kind of agreeing. Josh is mostly there. That, that that's Moncalm, isn't it, Dorman? In Last of the yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, Last of the Mohicans is the best war movie ever made because it's a chick flick for dudes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, got the music, it's got the romance, it's got the beautiful scenery and long scenes. Uh, and battles. Yeah, <laughs> battles. <laughs> and it does a fantastic job of showing that for the first part of the seven years, or the French-Indian War, the British got their asses kicked. <laughs> like, that's, it's, yeah. it's non-biased in that matter. I no, I, I just think it's a fantastic movie. And Mount Count does make a cameo, which is great. He does. He, he, he plays a large part. So for everyone listening, in Last Mohicans, one of the best films, if not the best film ever made. Um, I agree. He's the adversary in uh, that, apart from Maguire, isn't he, who plays one of his French Indian allies, who, who takes Fort William Henry. Uh, but I think there they kind of imply that he lets the Indians attack the British retreating, which is slightly on dodgy grounds of history. Uh, yeah. Completely false, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I did think that was the bit that wasn't quite there. The massacre was real, but not to that scale. And uh, but there was there was that encounter outside the the town, the forts, wasn't there? Where they the two armies came together and did a parley, I believe. So um, that's that's a beautiful scene. And uh, yeah, we do actually get uh, real historical characters from the 1700s military on the big screen with amazing musical scores, which is why it's so good. Um, so yeah, we, we get the pop culture reference in strong. Uh, we get General Moncalm, who's the adversary later of Wolf as well. Uh, so it's all nicely kind of tied in. Um, and we mentioned the French Indian allies. Um, they, they play a part on, on both sides, actually, along tribal lines and old uh, alliances, really. Um, Robbie, I'm looking at you purely because you've written about light infantry tactics, therefore I'm making a sweeping generalisation that because you know about men in woods, you might know about the, the brave uh, indigenous people of North America. Um, choose words very carefully, but may, maybe you can tell us a bit more about what's going on there. If you want me to sort of list off all the tribes and what side they were on, I cannot do that. Um, <laughs> beyond, okay. beyond the blanket statement of like the Huron are on the French side. Um, yeah, generally, French policy in North America kind of defined how they were fighting the war in so much as they, as has already been said, they were focused in Europe during the Seven Years' War on fighting, you know, major continental enemies like Prussia. Uh, so they couldn't really spare regular troops to help their Canadian colony. So they really relied very much on strong native alliances uh, in order to bolster their fighting forces. Uh, most of the fighting in North America on the French side was done by um, allied Native Americans and also by the sort of French-Canadian Quebecois um, militia, essentially. Uh, and yeah, they seriously gave the British uh, and their American colonists a run for their money in the first half of the war. In terms of actual battlefield tactics, uh, yeah, I mean, light infantry in North America are based essentially on as they called it, bush fighting or Indian style fighting. Uh, the, the typical strategy for Native American forces would be to engage the enemy in a sort of a half moon or a crescent shape. Uh, so they would feel out their flanks. This is ideally happening, obviously, in forested terrain for them. Um, discover the, the whereabouts, more or less, of the enemy's strength and then partially envelop it, uh, not fully envelop it, because they knew that if an uh, enemy is fully enveloped, then they tend to fight on to the death, especially if it's you know, a conflict between uh, white colonists and Native Americans, uh, neither side particularly renowned for prisoner taking. Um, so they would engage in this half crescent style, 
And basically, it would be a running fight over often a period of hours where the Europeans either would make the mistake of trying to engage in a traditional style the way they did very early on in the war. Uh, famously, uh, Edward Braddock's column was annihilated uh, when they tried to conduct uh, European-style tactics in heavily forested terrain. Kind of a, a subtopic for that, because I saw a very interesting paper recently that suggested that they could actually still have won using European tactics. It was just a few other factors that went against them. So it kind of blows apart this myth of, again, Redcoats will stand in line in the forest and they'll get shot. What a surprise. Uh, sadly, I haven't actually read the paper, but it sounds really interesting. Can't remember who it was by, so I know this is completely useless to all of you. But maybe <laughs> in the future I'll have read it and I can get back to you about that. I mean, I, I've, I've certainly read something like that. They did actually fight quite well at Monongahela in 1755. The initial French attack was repulsed. I mean, did they though? <laughs> like... no, this, this is what I mean. This is what I mean. At the start, the, the, the lines drove back the attack, mm. but there was some like Canadian and French officers who were like, "Well, let's just go around the sides, boys." And they came back, and then they lost all their cohesion, and then yeah. everything fell to pieces. Yeah, this, this think... is sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I just I think it was it. The native allies wanted to withdraw at that point, but it was a French officer who was like. We yeah, that's a that, that, yeah, that's a big thing with the uh, with Native Americans is that if they take too many casualties, it's pointless to them to continue the fight. Is is the thing? So because that was a big deal. The army they're fighting along family lines, tribes, and friends. I presume. Yeah, I mean, what's the point? It's just sensible, really, if you think about it. Okay, we're not winning this. Let's just go away and. <laughs> just go this way, guys. Let's go home. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was actually one of the, the issues with the horseshoe style envelopment tactics, in so much as you couldn't really maintain communication between two wings of that formation. So it worked well if everyone, the morale was good and they were slowly enveloping and pushing into this enemy formation. If one side decided to leave, then it could just completely fall apart. And at that point, yeah, the natives will just fall back and suddenly the Europeans will find they've not got anyone left to fight in the forest. Yeah. Dorman, you, you don't agree with all of that, though. Well, uh, this is Braddock's first foray in like, his sort of, <laughs> I guess it's, you could draw a, uh, a comparison to the Northern Campaign and the American War of Independence, right, where they just marched down one forest I mean, path. <laughs> Braddock, Braddock gets killed, so... Oh no, what a shame. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Braddock, um, the, the only reason I've, I've invested in this at all is the two regiments he brings in are both, they, they're fresh out of Ireland. It's the yeah. 44th and the 45th uh, foot, and he cherry picks them. And they, he, he describes how you know, their fighting spirit is really, really good, and you know, they're ready to go. But they have about a week and a half's worth of training before they embark on this campaign. Uh, <laughs> and most of that is spent with Braddock telling them to leave their stuff behind. So they, they, they trim down their coats, they leave a lot of the accoutrement behind, they just carry you know, guns, whatever. And they march, into this, they march down this road, they get surrounded, and it's like that scene in Predator where they just blaze away into the jungle and tear down the trees. <laughs> I mean, literally, <laughs> literally this, the scene in the last scene in the last Mohicans, that's the Monongahela battle. That's not yeah. Fort William Henry. That's actually Braddock's defeat, that thing happening there. Yeah. Like, they, it's, Sorry, it's I'm not really, I've now got the fight of Fort William Henry with a minigun and a cannon. <laughs> this is bizarre. <laughs> Uh, it'd be far, far more like I guess, it, they probably would have been likely to win had they had a minigun and maybe an underslung grenade launcher. But they blaze away and then they run away. Like it's not that 
I don't. I wouldn't say that they fought particularly admirably. They stood there for a long time and they shot for a long time, but yeah. it, it's not that impressive. And that kind of sets the tone for a lot of those early battles where the British are about as tactically flexible as a sledgehammer. Oh yeah, like the Battle of Koreon is an embarrassment. That is ridiculous. <laughs> That is that's Ticonderoga to all those Anglo-Saxon people, but it's Corillon for the French, and it's a Montcalm just just, just swats them like a fly. <laughs> yeah. So in, in essence, they have a number of regiments, which they this is in 1758, so just before our Quebec campaign. This is oh, this is all the prequel of um of everything, and they they're they're in an entrenched position. The French are, and um, Abercrombie, who's one of my favorite idiots of the period decides <laughs> let us full send into this uh defended position and to his in fairness the men fight very well but they're attacking a fortified position and they get slaughtered like it's very poor <laughs> so the fact that wolf manages to do much with this force is honestly pretty impressive uh, maybe he's just the first competent leader they've had there is that mm, maybe um, uh, yeah I, I have to agree i mean it's uh a situation as old as time, isn't it? The British Army soldiers don't really want to run away. They'll fight and win, but they can have some pretty bad leaders um, from today backwards, really, to, I don't know, Hastings. Um, <laughs> we, can, we can see it repeated quite a few times. Um, does it change with Wolf? Dorman, you, you started on us there. What, what kind of, what, can you summarise Wolf's army with a bit of flavour? We, we've already got gin-soaked rogues <laughs> yeah. quite warm to them um what what are they and also go on let, let me know how many irish and scottish men <laughs> are winning the day for the english well the, so i think it's worth mentioning that there's a fantastic quote that talks about the uh, american army in the 20th century where they, it, they describe, they're described as going into korea with a bad army and coming out with a good one going into vietnam with a good army and coming out with a bad one the Korean bit is probably pretty applicable to the British Army in the French Indian War. The British Army in the 1750s is in a in a state. Uh, there's a bit of a manpower shortage in the first place. They're reeling from the war of the Austrian secession for the I mean, bar a couple of successes. They haven't done particularly well. Discipline is very poor. Um, in fact, one of the regiments in this order of battle, which is the one that I was most excited about when I saw it, is the 28th under the command of Bragg. Bragg's regiment are notorious for ill discipline. At one stage, they get so drunk when they're in Ireland, they parade out of town still drunk in the morning. I'm pretty sure they're carrying officers on litters. Like, they are just notoriously ill-disciplined. Um, so you have this force that is, at best... Um, you know, they, they can maybe fight on a European level. But when you transplant this very European army into this new situation, and maybe if I read that paper Robbie mentioned, my mind would change, but they are not suited for the campaign they're going into. And it takes a lot of training in the field to turn them into a force that can. Uh, I mean, the, the Bible on this, I guess, is J.A. Hulding's Fit for Service. Uh, he has a long chapter there about the importance of the advanced training the British soldier is given. But you're talking weeks and weeks and weeks of fairly hard field drills, uh, be it in preparation for the siege of Louisbourg or other campaigns. Uh, and that comes down to the officer corps. But the men themselves of varying quality and this is also one of the first times where they kind of cast their eyes to the side for the recruitment of irish soldiers because they're quite desperate so you've got lots of irish catholics first time in british uniform i'm not going to say they were the best but it's ropey let's leave it at that 
And you've also got some Highland regiments. <laughs> yeah, most of the um, good Highlanders got killed at uh, Ticonderoga, I think. So, uh, of the Black Watch, yeah, but they got the yeah. 78th, who are reputed yeah. to be just a bunch of Jacobites. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Are the seventy-eighth, the gents who are doing the king over the water toast that we uh, we hear about. They every time they do a loyal toast, they put a glass of water down and they pass the port over the glass of water. So they're secretly toasting uh, the Stuarts over in France. I believe that's the seventy-eighth. Uh, just so it's just like kind of passive-aggressive uh, sedition, uh, basically, which is yeah, kind of acceptable. They, they still fight at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, their commander uh, was you know a Jacobite. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. The right guy, Simon Fraser. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there was. There's a myth that uh, the Frasers actually betrayed the Jacobites right at the end of Corton. They didn't turn mm-hmm. up the battle because they were in Inverness at the time. And when the Jacobites came streaming back through Inverness, they blocked the bridge across the river, uh, which then allowed some of them to get caught. Uh, again, probably apocryphal because I think it's just people trying to explain why Simon Fraser in particular went on and had a very successful British army career, which was <laughs> for a Jacobite. But, uh, but yeah, it is an interesting threat because Jacobites, former Jacobites, pop up all over the place in, uh, in this period, um, often serving uh, in Britain. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mm-hmm. And actually, the 78th were the largest battalion uh, at Quebec with about 600 men. Mm. Yeah. Most of them couldn't speak English except for the officers. I mean, the, there's two battalions of the 60th, but then the 78th in isolation are the largest. Yes, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. So, anything else you want to say about his army? Is it, are we generally talking large army, artillery? Uh, uh, small. He was hoping for 12,000 men, but he ended up with about 7,000 men. And That's all you need. But by the time you get to Quebec, you're actually dealing with about 3,000 men. Okay, so 3,000 men and what we're saying, two small cannon is it's a pretty small force. Well, two, two, 
two guns that they managed to drag up the blinking cliffs, but we'll get to that, I guess. <laughs> yeah. This is, this is not a big force. And, then, and they're being supported by the Royal Navy. We've got some boats. Of course. Boats. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's some Marines with them as well. And then they have, um, if I recall, there are some uh, sort of more militia E types as in. It's not all just regulars. I mean, Montcalm's army is obviously very small core regulars, but lots of ancillary yeah. characters. But uh, Wolf had a fair few as well that he wasn't necessarily too fond of. But yeah, I don't know about, uh, yeah, I don't know about the provincials and stuff with Wolf's army, but the uh, the the navy were there, and we, they couldn't have done this show without them. We can or cannot give you anything on that. I mean, it's commanded by Admiral Charles Saunders. He has 48 warships and 140 smaller vessels. And uh, three days before the battle, he comes to Wolf and he says, it's September, dude. I have to get out of here before basically I can't get out again. So you're going to have to do something quick. <laughs> Another age-old debate. Is the army just a, a weapon that's being launched by the Navy or is the Navy just a taxi service for the army? Um, and that would not be resolved anytime this millennium. Um, <laughs> but it, it is important. This is kind of an amphibious landing, isn't it? This is dual arms warfare as it is you know effectively all arms warfare we don't have an air force for quite a while to april fool's day um so we've got these forces having to work together and they're coming ashore do the landings go well and where are they landing so the basic thing you need to know about the 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 landings is that the cliffs are formidable but they're not unscalable they're made of shale uh, with uh, lots of handholds from roots and things like that sticking out of them. Um, the Navy obviously gives direct support. They bombard the heck out of the Montmorency shore to make sure that Montcalm is looking in the wrong place. Um, and obviously they supply the boats to get, uh, to get Wolf's boys across. So, but the most important things to remember are that the French are spread out in small pickets along the precipice and we're expecting a convoy of supplies for themselves. Um, uh, the French General Reserve under uh, Chevalier de Bougainville was concentrated uh, at a place called Cap, uh, Cap Rouge, I believe, which is uh, some distance to the southwest, if I'm orienting it properly. Um, and so not a lot of opposition up on top of the cliffs. And the two most important people on the British side in the early hours of the 13th of September, uh, well, 12th of September when it actually started, but you know what I mean, uh, was Lieutenant Colonel William Howe of the 58th, commanding the Light Infantry, and a chap called Captain Donald MacDonald of the 78th Highlanders. Uh, Captain MacDonald, basically, according to a chap called Henry Knox, who is very important in the rest of the of history of the uh, war, war in America, and uh, who left a very important journal of the campaign. Uh, he had, in quotes, knowledge of the French service, which is a phrase I find so fascinating because it makes me wonder whether he had actually fought with the French or he had like studied them or something. But anyway, he could speak excellent French. And when the boats were challenged, he was, he and another source says Simon Fraser as well, alongside him, bluffed their way to the shore by saying, we're just the supply boats, Let us, we're just coming ashore, it's all right, don't worry about it. 
and the entire operation was dependent on this them getting there without being observed so that was really unfortunate that they had these guys to be able to speak french in a manner that the french would be fooled um once they got ashore and they did get successfully ashore the forlorn hope and the light infantry were the first ones to land the entire operation was dependent on the forlorn hope securing a very simple road that ran up the cliffs which would make it so much easier for everybody to get up unfortunately they landed in the wrong place it's dark um so Well, William Howe is right there on the spot with with the Forlorn Hope, and he sends the Forlorn Hope to go and search for this stupid road. And he takes his light infantry, and he just scales the cliffs to the top, where again they encounter French pickets, and again Macdonald bluffs them and allows Howe to secure the cliff tops. And from that point, Wolf is man- Wolf manages to get his boats ashore, get his men ashore, and starts trailing them all the way up. this cliff side and uh, establishing himself on top brilliant i love the classic army blunder of going in the wrong place boy blame the navy for that i can't quite remember <laughs> um but then we end up underneath the, the city almost don't we so uh, quebec's on really large heights and the, these big cliffs make up a huge part of it and at the top of the cliffs are the plains of abraham which is the other name for this battle it's normally referred referred to as the battle of quebec uh, but actually it's often um, sometimes referred to as the battle of the plains of abraham because the battle itself is kind of condensed to this well now it's a bit of a clearing at the edge of the city uh, but that's where lots of the fighting takes place as both armies start to form up but to get there the british army have got to literally climb really steep cliffs uh again there's an amazing painting of this with the, i think the the drummer uh with his drum on the back and the light infantrymen right saying scaling up and the highlanders even think with their kilts uh are there too uh, really beautiful painting i can't remember who it's by uh but it really defines uh the era as well and uh i'm sure robbie will agree it kind of brings in the the light infantry elements and why wolf is probably remembered on that too Yeah, I mean, of course we see William Howe becomes William Howe commander in chief of the British Army in North America during the American Revolution and is kind of the the brains behind a lot of the innovation then. Uh so without sort of hijacking the the podcast episode to talk about him more because we've already done that. Uh yeah, he he kind of uh, wins his spurs uh, that night when he scales the cliffs and manages to take that French picket by surprise and that's what enables the landing to go ahead because you know if the french are able to respond rapidly uh then wolf's going to end up in an absolute disastrous position you know if daylight comes out and his army is still strung out um either at the bottom of the cliffs or in the small boats on the st lawrence uh you know it's it's game over uh so it's a serious a serious coup that he pulls off by uh actually succeeding in getting his troops up that cliff face and as he said it kind of becomes iconic because it is a real a do or die moment uh and then it all goes to plan and the next day Montcalm wakes up and suddenly he's got uh, a load of redcoats outside the part of the city he thought was safe which uh, then trips him into i wouldn't say panicking because i think the best strategy for him was to try and attack immediately in order to dislodge them before they managed to sort of entrench and start building some serious siege lines there uh, but he does just throw his forces out of the city in an attempt to in, uh, initiate a pitched battle um, he has got reinforcements on the way from uh, the Beaufort lines further down the river but he doesn't wait for them he decides he just has to go because he's kind of pressured into this by Wolfe's sudden appearance and uh, as you say we get the battle of the plains of Abraham. Oh, brilliant. Awful, 
I presume they, they assumed it was going to be impassable and hit that flank was secure by having cliffs. People don't. People in this era don't climb cliffs and, and start battling. There, uh, there is actually a fun story about um, General Wade, who often doesn't have very many fun stories associated with him, uh, famous in Scotland for building roads to help uh, suppress the Jacobites. But uh, for a while, he was in charge of Edinburgh Castle. And uh, it was Edinburgh Castle was kind of viewed as a very sort of a strong position, but uh, he had his doubts about how modern it was in terms of the fortification. So he ordered, I think it was four of his redcoats to climb the cliff the castle was built on and get inside the castle um, just without anything, just their hands and feet, and uh, see if they could do it. And they apparently managed to do it in six minutes. So uh, yeah, redcoats can actually climb. <laughs> Not certainly not part of the uh, the drill manual in the seventeenth. No. <laughs> so then we've got both armies now. One running out of Quebec, going, "Oh, there's some redcoats," and the other having just climbed a load of uh, cliffs and appeared with. I'm presuming they they hold the very two small guns up there with them, up some ropes or something. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, excellent. Okay, that's, that's the only way I'd do it. I mean, uh, it's, it's actually the guns that get Montcalm worried. Actually, when he sees those two guns appear. Where a person can go, a cannon can go, as yeah. Royal Artillery guys said. Of course. Uh, he, he, Montcalm was actually spent the night down at Beaufort, where, um, where he's been watching the, the Royal Navy bombard stuff that isn't there. And he comes up in the early hours of uh, the 13th, uh, and he does not like what he sees. That is, I mean, I, 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 I'm in two minds about what... How to how to kind of how kind of describe what he does because like Robbie says, it, it seems unfair to call it a panic, but he's not reacting well <laughs> to what is happening either. Um, he's because he 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 doesn't have a lot of men. His best men are with Bougainville because that was what he called his flying column that had his grenadiers in and he had his choice men with him. And they're down like a couple of miles away. And for some reason, communications now break down and they take ages to get back to Quebec. Um, so all he can do is muster in the militia. He sends back, like Robbie said, to get reinforcements. It's, and anybody who, anybody who talks about Montcalm at this point talks about him being very concerned about what's going on here. And being very kind of, uh, he feels necessary to attack. And uh, because he, he comes up and he just says, c'est un affaire sérieux, and immediately sends for help. Um, but everybody talks about him being very, very, looking very tired and very worried. And uh, he's quoted as saying uh, that we cannot avoid an action because, look, the enemy has cannons up now, and if we give them time to establish themselves, well, we can't attack with the peace with with the army we have. Because remember, he doesn't really like his army any more than Wolf does, because he's a regular and he's he's got regular snobbishness going on here. Things are made worse when his rival, the Governor General, sends a helpful note out, telling him. Now, the other thing to remember here is that the Governor of Vaudreuil loves the, the concept of letting the Indians and Canadian militia shoot British regulars to pieces, right? And that actually, that tactic does work. And so he, was, he sent this helpful note out to Montcalm and said, 
right, we've got them where we want them, to be honest. They're sitting up here. They've got a cliff to their back. Bougainville's behind them. All we have to do is wait a little while. I'll give you 1,500 men from Quebec, and we'll just, we'll just destroy them out there. Just wait a minute. <laughs> but Montcalm hates this. Wait. <laughs> no, Montcalm hates this because he doesn't like being told what to do by a civilian. <laughs> and this essentially spares him into action. Uh, that and the fact, ironically, that actually the Canadian militia and Indians who are hanging around, on the, hanging around on the flanks of the British position have actually been very effective in containing the British whenever they've tried to go anywhere. And he's been riding up and down his line, which has formed about 500 yards from the British position on, on, a, on a low, in quotes, butte. Um, and they've been cheering him, and he's been sort of saying encouraging things to them, and he's feeling kind of hopeful that if he sticks to the French doctrine of let's just attack them, which is regular doctrine, you know, um, maybe he can actually, maybe he can get the glory here and he doesn't have to listen to the governor. Okay, so how do the actual battle lines form up then? I'm presuming French regulars now? <laughs> the, Brit the British, uh, I guess, uh, they're not borrowing from the uh, Native Americans, but they inadvertently form a horseshoe. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I believe there's some, um, I think the 60th and uh, some of the other yeah, bits yeah. involved. They're put on the sides, and then they've got basically for their regulars in a really long, thin line, and um, I think two ranks, and it's mm -hmm. just regiment by regiment by regiment by regiment. There isn't much of a reserve, if I recall. No, yeah. So it is quite just. It, it's the thin red line that uh, mm -hmm. becomes so it's famous in the nineteenth century. Back, there's probably not a lot of room for reserves. No, true, good point. And when your reserves have just come off the cliff, they're not much use, are they? So <laughs> you might as well just string out. Um, double shot your muskets and wait. Okay, for some reason they form in two ranks. Nobody knows whether this is because this is due to uh, General Amherst's standing orders for, for service in America, or because they just need to cover the front, because there's another source that says that they stand with about three feet in between files. The only regiment standing in three ranks is the Frasers, um, because people think they just had enough men to have a large... There's 500 Frasers up on the left flank there. So... Um, yeah, it's a really long, thin line, which is very unusual. Mm. So the British are like slightly more extended than the French, then, even with their tiny force. Well, the French also have a really tiny force. They only have between three thousand five hundred and two thousand five hundred men, and nobody knows whether the militia are ever counted in the numbers. The French do have seven battalions of infantry, regular infantry, but they have been leavened by drafts from the militia who are in quotes unfit for the woods and they form up with about 16 men in each company uh, forming the second rank of every french uh, battalion um so again it's a single line but with two columns of two the two central regular units of the french army form in columns brilliant so how does the opening stage of the battle kind of progress are we going toe-to-toe -to -toe here? <laughs> bearing, in mind, bearing in mind it's a 10 minutes long battle. Um, yeah. <laughs> Those opening five minutes are very intense. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, we can't, can't really do well work, actually. <laughs> yeah. We can't really do uh, an in-depth blow-by-blow because it just kind of like happened and that was it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, the French on, walk, take, take so, they, they walk up 
Um, there's, a, there's some skirmishing on the sides um, from the Canadians and the Native Americans who are present. Um, the French regulars come close and closer and closer and closer. And Wolf has this idea between the oblique fire and holding your fire and the, the concept of first fire and the first volley is always the most effective and double shotting your muskets. So they're firing two balls each. Um, he just waits. They enter what it's deemed effective range. They fire and apparently 150 Frenchmen are killed on the spot. And then that's kind that's of the it. battle. That's the battle. Overpowered, it got me. Yeah, and then they, I guess they charge and the Frasers draw their swords famously and go in after them mm. and everything. So it's, 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 it's kind of a, I don't know. It's, 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 a, it's such a, such a weird battle, isn't it? It's yeah. like, like, they're really equal numbers of men on either side. And there's a fair amount of like, first-hand accounts of the battle, so you can get into the kind of, like, the really little minutiae of how volley fire works, kind of, I guess. But, I mean, what the French what, what the French did was they blamed the militia, because at 88, within, within 100 yards, the French would have been advancing at their average pace of about 60, pace, 60 steps a minute. And then when they get within that range, they're supposed to speed up and attack. From that, in, from that effective range, the, the French are described variously of, as firing twice. Some people say that this is the militia stopping without orders and firing and then dropping to reload, causing complete mess and havoc. And others say that everybody fired. But either way, the regulars then went on, fired again, and then, then the British fire. Um, and it's just appalling carnage. <laughs> Uh, and that is the, yeah, that's the battle. The problem is that the French fire has been effective to the extent that they have knocked out a ridiculous amount of senior officers. Mm. So it is actually only the, the phrases and a couple of units on the left flank that actually decide, let's chase them down, boys. And there's some, some rather gory accounts of the phrase destroying their swords and going in and hacking and the, the stains on the, white uniforms and people being rather dis rather horrified by the wounds of the when they find the the claymore work uh, uh later on some actually say that the terror inspired by the highland charge at this point saved many frenchmen because they ran away so fast the artillery couldn't register on them but in turn the phrases were driven back by canadian militia and they actually suffered the highest casualties of any single battalion yeah, it's um, short and short. Talking about the, the senior officers, uh, we kind of mentioned it earlier, a uh, key part of this is the commanders are, are hitting this short 10-minute engagement, but we, we lose Wolf and uh, Montcalm's hit later. He's hit we really need to talk retreat, about, yeah. yeah, we really need to talk about Wolf here because I'm so confused. What do you got? What, how many times was he hit, guys? <laughs> I mean, the man seems to be full of holes. I did not realize this. But he, I, okay, so I read, everybody take turns here. How many times was Wolf hit? I've read he was hit in the wrist by a Canadian marksman before the battle started. He was then wounded by some kind of artillery fragment and then shot during the actual French fusillade. Mm. Does that sound right? I mean, I definitely knew he was wounded and then carried on, so... Yeah, it's it's two or three. Yeah, I mean the fatal wound is the shot to the ch to the chest, right? Yeah, 
but he's doing my goodness. <laughs> he's directing. He's directing the, the. I guess the follow-up attack as we're describing it, and he's he's shot a second, third time, and this is going to count for him. I believe this is this is mortal. I mean, it, it's also semi-ironic because he had supposedly very much premonition that uh, his time was up, or well, certainly he uh, had a very melancholic attitude. Um, by this point in the campaign, uh, where, you know, up until this desperate play, uh, it had not really gone according to plan whatsoever. And uh, he knew certainly that his career was on the line um, if this didn't go correctly. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if it's true, but supposedly he said uh, things along the lines of um, that he wasn't going to live to see uh, another engagement after this one. Uh, And he got his prediction correct. Yeah, I, I was reading in preparation for this that the he was he was shot. He was on the floor, and there was a soldier nearby shouting, "They're running! They're running!" And he asked, "Well, who's running?" And someone shouted, "The French, of course." And uh, he said something along the lines of, "Oh, good! Now God will let me die in peace." Um, so, yeah, he, he does seem to kind of be accepting his fate there a bit. I think we're gonna come back to his actual death as a bit of a semi-romantic scene. But he's not the only one who cops a load of canister and musket fire. Uh, Montcalm, in the kind of uh, beginning stages of the retreat, you're saying it's a a short battle, so I'm guessing after about (laughs) four minutes, um, he gets the fire as well. And um, yeah, is that the end of him? Uh, Well, he, um, he lasts a bit longer than the wolf. First of all, he gets kind of driven back by his own troops, and either it's either some sort of artillery fragment, canister ball, or musket ball that hits him in the back, or something like that. Um, but he doesn't want to panic anybody further than he already is, um, uh, other than they already are. Uh, uh, he's and so in his in his his, his resplendent uh, green and gold coat on his big dark horse, uh, he he very politely asks two of his soldiers to lead his horse back into the city, and then they see that he's wounded and they they freak out, and the, and he just very 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 calmly very calmly just says, um, "I'm all right." Don't worry about me. It's nothing to fret over, my friends. And they take him to a doctor who then tells him, he's, well, you're going to die. Um, <laughs> uh, and he, he dies the next day. Uh, to his dying breath, Montcalm maintained that if he had had sole command of Quebec, he would never have, uh, he would never have been defeated <laughs> as a parting jab to his, his rival, the governor. The best jabs always are as soon as you're dying. Because then there's no yeah. comeback from that. No comeback. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we're losing Montcalm as well. Um, let's go back a little bit to Death of Wolf and this this amazing painting. He's in an open ground and he's surrounded by all his commanders, and it looks a little bit like the death of Nelson and Hardy's going to come in and kiss it. I'm presuming that isn't entirely accurate, and he's probably just bleeding out on the ground on the battlefield. I don't think there's a single thing that's accurate about that, apart from maybe his uniform. That's about it. He's (laughs) definitely wearing red. Yes, he is. Um, Robbie, we're we're on a situation here similar to the Patriot, that the uniforms, (laughs) the rest, probably trash. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, Wolf was kind of famous for wearing a very simple uh, uniform. Um, he uh, you know, didn't have brocade and fancy stuff going on. He just carried a fusel as well and a bayonet, just like a regular soldier, um, which was part of his shtick, being like, hey, I'm just like you guys. Um, but yeah, the, the painting itself is its a massive sort of a classic drive at uh, imperial propaganda. Because if you look at it, um, obviously he has uh, British officers around him and he has the full gamut of British officers. So he's got a uh, Royal Artillery guy, there's his um, surgeon, um, actually went to university with someone who claimed to be descended from the, uh, the doctor that's treating him in that photo. Anyway. I, I believe actually he refuses a surgeon, doesn't he anyway? Kind of being like, like you said earlier, he, he, he has a premonition about his death and they ask him for a surgeon, like, no, I'm done for. Yeah, exactly. That was that was him down to a T. Uh, I mean, he was kind of sickly all throughout his life and uh, almost fantasized about having this heroic end. Uh, so, you know, a dream come true moment for him. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's got sort of the, the British regulars there in the painting. Uh, if you look in the background, there's some sailors from the Royal Navy dragging a cannon. Uh, we've got the, the Native American ally on the left. Uh, we've got a colonial ranger also on the left of his. I say this, I'm actually looking at it because it's the cover of uh, Crucible of War, which I've got uh. <laughs> I'm, I'm cheating. But uh, yeah, so it kind of, it's meant to display the entirety of the British Empire in this one period of time and how they've kind of all come together in this moment of triumph uh, and this tragic loss. Um, it's also quite unusual for the period because it doesn't try and use uh, like direct classical motifs. Um, often you'd have people dressed in like Roman style or Grecian style to kind of hark back uh, in the style of the art to uh, antiquity. But here he actually goes for uh, a decent level of accuracy in terms of the actual uniforms they're meant to be wearing. So I think that that strikes a chord. Um, I've read, I can't absolutely confirm it, but I've read it's the most uh, reproduced image from the 18th century. So in terms of, you know, like secondary prints and it being just widespread um, throughout Britain, uh, it was extremely popular and obviously went a very long way to building up this uh, semi-mythos that surrounds Wolf and his, his last act. Mm. Yeah, it's, I mean, like I said earlier, it's an amazing painting. Uh, I'm not surprised it's quite fictionalised because it is so stunning and there's so much going on in there. Yeah, you're saying about the, uh, the Royal Navy dragging some cannons. I'm like, hold on, I'm pretty sure Robbie's always told us that two tiny cannons. Um, so that seems unlikely, but I don't think anything's going to take away. It's a stunning thing. Royal, Royal, Royal Artillery cannons, we might also say. The Navy didn't actually drag them out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for some reason there are sailors um, hauling this cannon. Um, I mean, the Royal Navy has to get a mention somewhere, doesn't it? You know, yeah, yeah. That's, that's quite true, but... Uh, I, I think it's very unlikely that Royal Artillery are going to let someone else uh, carry their cannons into the battle. <laughs> yeah. as, as a proud gunner, get your hands off our colours. Um, I'm, so, I'm so proud of my internet search uh, suggestions because I type in Death of Wolf and the first suggestion is Tone, not at Quebec. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dolman. <laughs> Classic. I thought you were going to say you left an E off the end of all hunting scenes. Um, yeah, so can someone summarise what happens? We've got both commanders dead and dying on the floor. Um, the Fraser Highlanders are charging in with swords. Um, so that sounds good, unless you're French. Um, so the battle's kind of going in the British ally uh, favour. And, you know, do we capture Quebec? What's the, what's the outcome? 
capture Canada, don't they? I mean, long term or short term? <laughs> In the next, like, you know, one or two days. <laughs> yes, Quebec falls as a result of the battle. French are deprived of their main field army. De Bougainville is not in time to affect the battle. He kind of shows up just as the French army are just in complete retreat back towards the city. Um, there is no other option for the French but to surrender. And Quebec is taken. Um, de Bougainville has to withdraw and the French have to rethink what they're going to do. Um, and their initial idea is to try and retake Quebec. But I don't think they're successful, are they? No, no, they aren't. But in, in trying, they do win another battle, weirdly enough. Yeah, we, uh, they defeat the British outside Quebec, funnily enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> When's that? So we started in September and the French come back. I think it's the next year, isn't it? 1716. Yep. But it is in the winter. It's terrible weather. Um, mm. And the British, for some reason, sadly, everybody wants to sally out of blinking Quebec whenever an enemy force comes up. But yeah, well, the wouldn't come- you? Have you been to Quebec? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're talking about strategic. I think we're talking, talking about cultural issues. I was going to say, I want to know Are we just going to offend all of French Canada now? Go ahead. to a podcast about the Wolf in Quebec. Poutine is overrated. That's all I'm saying. I'm leaving this bit in. Okay. Militar- militarily speaking, I don't know why Montcalm decided to attack. Impact, militarily speaking, I don't know why. Is it Murray who's in charge? Yeah. Uh, after Wolf dies, yeah. Um, he decides to go out as well in the snow. And the French general or commander is the Chevalier de Lévis, um, or Levi. I don't know how he wanted to pronounce it. Um, and he, 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 he gives them a black eye. Still don't take the city, though. No, because who knows? Maybe the French could have just said, "Okay, you're on the battle. We'll just we'll just hang out." Who knows? Maybe it could have. Maybe they didn't need to surrender at all. And this leads to pretty much all of Upper Canada starting to to fall into British hands. Then, yes and no. <laughs> at the risk of getting too whimsical. This is a very small engagement that has very wide-reaching consequences. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, we, sh- we should briefly say, harking uh, back a second, to the, the there's about 3,000 men on either side. They both inflict very similar casualties as well. There's about 600 casualties on either side. So like, he's, like you're saying, it's quite small. Yeah. And despite the scale of the operation and how minor it is, the impact of it is huge i mean at home or back in britain you've got this sort of it's part of this annus mirabilis right this like miracle year where everything goes to plan and france is just so heavily on the back foot as a result of this event in europe events elsewhere and they don't really recover i mean arguably i guess they kind of make a comeback during the american war of independence but that's a war by proxy. In terms of the Seven Years' War, it's seminal. There is no real going back from it. It's it's certainly really writing on the wall time for French Canada, for certain. Um, because if you think of Louisburg as the, the first obstacle to the St. Lawrence, 
Quebec is the second. And after Quebec, you're going to be aiming straight for Montreal, which is French capital. And like I said before, you've got Amherst's main army coming up from New York sort of state frontier uh, through Ticonderoga. And also the Niagara Passage is also being hit. Uh, French Canada gets dismembered basically in the next couple of years and Montreal eventually falls. Yeah, and I'm really glad Dorman mentioned uh, the Annus Mirabilis. You know, 1759 is known as the, one of the wonderful years. Um, it leads to all sorts of things, not only the, the famous painting, but there's loads of victories going on. Um, we actually gives us the famous Hearts of Oak song, uh, which, you know, is the kind of adopted by the Royal Navy, but uh, actually pretty much everyone's singing it at the time. Uh, there's so much going on, and, and France is in such terrible dire straits because of it uh, but in old fashion Britain celebrates because France is having a terrible time um, so everything seems to be going really well um, and yeah I think that it kind of summarises Quebec it's it's a really small short sharp engagement but it becomes so iconic with the scaling of the cliffs and then as um, you said especially Robbie you know Wolf almost wants this martyrdom and so he gets it uh, he's a young, relatively good-looking like officer who kind of sacrifices himself there. Um, he's certainly dashing, and he, he gets this martyrdom at the point of victory. And you know, we love all that with uh, with Nelson uh, a couple of years later. So that gives us what we want, which is victory and martyrdom all wrapped up in a nice little neat package. We didn't get to see him going on a crazy rampage during the American Revolution as well. Mm. That's the big what if, right? What if? he hadn't been killed, what would have happened? How would the British army have performed thereafter? Would, would he have gone terrier-like after Washington? <laughs> yeah, he's 32 years old. He's uh, what, an, an acting major general in the colonies, uh, I presume, therefore, a full colonel uh, back in Europe. So he, he's, got, he's got a fair career ahead of him, even average life expectancy. He's got another 10 years. So... Um, he could certainly have had an impact on those. Uh, does anyone have much thought on that? Do you, do you come down on Wolf being some sort of great figure or is actually, is it, is it all a bit of overhype? I mean, yeah, with British military history, the question is, could he have maintained the standard of the army over the decade that followed? Uh, could he have had them go into the American War of Independence with an army that was of a higher quality than they did? If he could have done that, I would argue it would have made a difference. Otherwise, he's just another commander. Yeah, it's, I mean, it is difficult to say. Uh, I would have some worry if I was the British ministry in 1775 about what he might do in terms of uh, hearts and minds uh, in America, because, I mean, during the Quebec campaign, he decimates the area around the St. Lawrence. He, you know, burns homesteads, um, basically does uh, scorched earth policy to the, the local French Canadians and natives living there. Uh, certainly not someone that has any qualms about targeting uh, non-combatants. So that's really one of the classic things that uh, the British struggle with. You know, in the American Revolution, the British high command desperately wants uh, colonists not be mistreated uh, and sort of lower down company, battalion, regiment level commanders really don't share uh, that desire when it comes to combating the, the colonists. So 
uh, yeah, I don't know if it would really have helped in terms of uh, encouraging the colonists to not be as rebellious. Um, yeah, uh, what has been said really is whether he could maintain the, uh, the effectiveness of the British Army's uh, ability to campaign in North America in that intervening period. Uh, I don't really know because there's a lot of internal politicking that goes on in the British yeah. Army. Period, so. it, it, it's, there's also some that say that Wolf was lucky rather than actually good. Um, if you think about Lewisburg, his job at Lewisburg was essentially to get the troops ashore. And he has stormed effectively the shore and took it. So that's a very minor operation under the command of General Amherst. And then Quebec almost goes terribly wrong because he just cannot get the army to where it needs to be. And then this, right at the last minute, he comes up with this ridiculous scheme, which could have gone appallingly wrong, <laughs> um, where he basically says, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go home in disgrace or I'm going to wreck this army on the plains of Abraham. <laughs> is yeah. what he decides to do. <laughs> I feel like he probably would have ended up getting killed at Bunker Hill right at the start of the American Revolution. Yeah. Yeah. At that point, so. <laughs> yeah, leading I, from the front. Yeah. I think General Howe was actually the guy you did actually want, to be honest, in yeah. the American Revolution rather than um, Wolf. But like you say, it's a what if you don't actually, there's no real way, it's really difficult to answer these, these questions, sorts of questions. Oh, it's a, it's a huge what if, uh, you know, some people say it's pointless to argue them, uh, but I just think it's really interesting that uh, he had so much of a career ahead of him and is quite a figure for that era that what could have happened, uh, obviously open to interpretation, but uh, you're my, you're my 1700 guys. <laughs> I mean, uh, impact wise, he does. Yes. He reforms some bits and bobs and he fights a couple of engagements. And as just argues, he kind of gets lucky. He's famous because he got shot. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't really, it's not that I don't rate him. I think he's a very interesting general and a very interesting mm. character. But I, don't, I do think he is one of these people who, whose impact is elevated above what it actually was as a result of his demise. Mm -hmm. yeah. and I mean, weirdly enough, if, if, you, if you compare him to Montcalm, Montcalm actually comes off as the better general hmm. because if you look at the career through 1757 to like 59 right up to the very last day almost Montcalm has done bigger things and has done a creditable campaign we see this loads in history we, um, Sir John Moore would probably have been court-martialed for his handling of the Corona campaign um, Nelson, he, you know, he is now one of the biggest figures in British history. He committed war crimes in Naples and then did two amazing battles. But as, you know, Josh hosted uh, Kate Jameson and I blimey like 18 months ago, even she said anyone could have basically won that battle with the, the state of the Royal Navy was in. It was so superior to the French, which is words I did not expect to hear her say. Um, <laughs> but we, we wouldn't ever think of that nine times out of ten in the UK because we just think, oh, Nelson is the world's greatest sailor. But actually, he was quite egotistical and got seasick. So 
but he he is given that kind of master near near sainthood really he is revered in certain circles wolf doesn't quite have that but he does have that dramatic death and like just looking back at the painting to see someone who's been shot three times i don't see a lot of blood on him it's like a bbc drama <laughs> there was there was a lot of blood <laughs> it's all in the coat that used to be a white coat <laughs> damn it that's why we made coach Fred. that's a really big myth um so, yeah um we do have that with wolf and i think it's a it's a fascinating uh, character and you know I kind of thank you all for for wanting to uh, do uh, Wolf actually because I I knew very little about him uh, other than his house and I wanted to uh, do the research for this episode and uh, I certainly feel like you've, you've shown me a lot more um, on that I just want to kind of give a shout out to uh, Quebec House in Westerham in Kent it's a really small property so I've just had a look they're not reopening until June due to the, the COVID restrictions um, because I think the rooms are, are really tiny compared to you know great um, houses um, but it, it's really quaint um, Wolf lived there for 10 years as a child I think from ages of like 1 to 11 and his father rented the place. Uh, but now there's a small museum about the Battle of Quebec, if you want to find out more. Uh, there's portraits of him, and there's actually some rooms normally with some reenactment equipment for people to handle. And when I was there, the kitchens were open, giving some little um, 1700s treats out, and the fires were lit. It's, it's really nice. It's in set in beautiful gardens. And if you want to day out around the National Trust, everything you could want for military history, just kind of condense into a small property. And there is a statue of, of Wolf in the town. And actually, there's a statue of uh, Winston Churchill as well, because uh, he lived just down the road at Chartwell. So it's a really it's a really good one if you're in South East England to go out. And as I say, they're reopening in uh, late June due to COVID restrictions. And uh, if anyone can support heritage sites, it's always a good thing. Thank you, gents. Is there anything else you want to say about Wolf? Now's your chance. Well, for my part, I'd just like to go on record and say I'm slightly on the French side in the French and Indian War. <laughs> but uh, so, so I, was, I was here for more calm, more than Wolf. <laughs> but, <laughs> he, he, yeah, he, he turned a bad army into a good one. That's, mm -hmm. If you want to he talk was. about legacy. A fellow ginger, so I'm going to have to come down on your side. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I certainly learned a lot about Wolf, uh, both listening to yourselves and doing the research for this. And, uh, you know, a 10 minute battle, uh, but changed a lot in the, the course of history of Canada and uh, kind of stuck the knife into Minden and all sorts of battles in 1759 and uh, shaped uh, Europe as it was going to become. So thank you very much for, uh, for highlighting that. And as ever, uh, please like, subscribe and do all those things for History Hack. And if you do fancy supporting History Hack uh, post-COVID so that we can keep going, uh, do support us on Patreon as well. But until then, everyone keep well and uh, we'll see you soon. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.